You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. If you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 10 today. As I, as I kind of said in our our welcome this morning. Today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is that Sunday before Easter. It's a day that we remember as this celebration when Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. And throughout his ministry, you know, Jesus never really wanted to um, receive the glory and the fame. Um, He never wanted to receive this idea of being an earthly king, but that particular Palm Sunday, Jesus got on the back of a colt, a donkey, and he marched into Jerusalem, claiming Jerusalem as the king. You know, and it's pretty interesting because as, as that's taking place, you know, in his three and a half years of ministry, Jesus had gathered a lot of attention. He had gathered a lot of notoriety, a lot of fame, and people, crowds would, would go to wherever Jesus was and, and would listen to him speak. And so he had become famous in his day. And as he's going through there, as he's on the back of this donkey, as he's entering Jerusalem, the crowd, the crowds come and there's, it's a big parade. And, and we get this idea of Palm Sunday because they begin to wave the palms and lay the palms down on the ground. And and, you know, it's amazing to think about how, how quickly it turns for Jesus, isn't it? You know, he goes from one, one weekend he is being celebrated as a king, and in less than a week he's being hung on a cross. And um, the tides change very, very rapidly. And this is a, a, a special week for us as believers. You know, we... we so often talk about this story of Easter at this time of the year, and for good reason. But, but one of the things I fear in our own faith is this is the only time of the year that we really think about these things. We, this is the only time that we really think about Jesus. And, you know, Good Friday this week when we maybe we'll, we'll run through some thoughts of, of Jesus um, and the beatings that he had taken and the, the ultimate hanging on a cross and dying for us. You know, it's, we'll think about that on Friday and then Saturday or Sunday when we come, we celebrate how Jesus, um, his resurrection. But unfortunately, those, those thoughts of Good Friday, they, they sometimes only come around once a year or, or, or seldom. And um, we don't need to worship a Jesus um, that's, dead on a cross by no stretch, by no imagination. But it would do us well, I think, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to to consider what he went through on our behalf. And and I think as we do that, it helps our faith not be so cheap. And so I would encourage us this week to really consider that. Maybe even today, you know, today's message isn't 
maybe the typical Palm Sunday message. Today's message isn't about this triumphal entry per se, although we're going to talk about a pretty amazing triumphal entry. But, but this week, maybe you go back and, and you read that triumphal entry. You spend some time going through, uh, you know, maybe a good thing for you this week might, might be to start at John chapter 14 and read to the end of the Gospel of John. Maybe a chapter or two a day and just go through that journey and see what Jesus did on our behalf and, and prepare ourselves for Easter Sunday. So uh, I would encourage that. I would encourage you again, and today we, we, we see it being modeled out, but we'll talk probably touching this at the end, but, but I would encourage you right now to begin praying through who you plan on inviting to church on Easter Sunday. Um, I, I think Easter Sunday is one of those days that whether someone is a churchgoer or not, they're more inclined to go to church on Easter Sunday. And if that's the case, then I believe we ought, to, we ought to take advantage of that opportunity. We ought to take advantage of their openness. And, and so I really would encourage you guys, last week in our small little Bible study, um, I, I, we had half sheets or pieces of paper on, on the chairs. And I encouraged everybody put, to put down to write a name or names of, of people that you were planning on inviting to church for Easter and then to put it on the prayer wall. And that we begin praying over those, those names right now. And some did. Uh, you know, if you weren't here this past Sunday, I'd encourage you to do the same thing. There's, there's still sheets of paper right over on the chair right by the prayer wall. But, but think of some names. Put, like, put, this isn't just a general plea. I want you to start thinking. I want to put faces and names. Some people that you plan on. Someone that you know. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. Someone you work with. Just somebody that you plan on, on inviting the church this Easter. And then um, if, if you have a name, you know, write on a piece of paper and put it on that prayer wall. Start praying about it right now. Pray that God gives you the opportunity to invite them. And as he does, that you take advantage of that opportunity and that you, that you take action and, and begin inviting people. All right, so we're going to read. I'm going to read Acts chapter 10. Um, we're going to start in verse 34, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. All right, so here we go. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34, it says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right and is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee from the baptism that, G that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers 
from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your word. God, I'm thankful that we can come to it and we can look at it, we can study it, and we can learn from it. God, I'm thankful that you've provided this treasure map for us. Lord, it's something that can help us in our everyday lives. It's a, it's a tool that we can go to. It's a connection that we have with you. It's our opportunity to see your heart. Lord, I pray that this morning as we, as we dig into your word, that we remain faithful to it. God, that we, that we maybe learn something this morning, something that enriches our lives, something that causes us to grow closer to you. God, I pray for life change. God, I pray that this morning there's some here today that have never accepted you as their Savior. They're just like the Gentiles in this particular story. They're here, they're, they're gathered, they're listening to a message, and that message is used to bring them into a relationship with you. And so God, I pray that if there's some here this morning that have never accepted you as their Savior, that this passage rings true, that they understand it, they see it, that the light comes on, that they see your love, that they see your grace, and they accept you as their Savior. Lord, for those who have already accepted you as their Savior, God, I pray that we see the great commission played throughout this whole passage. We see this map, this, this life that we should try to emulate, this model as a church that we should, we should try and create. Lord, I, I thank you for what takes place in this passage. The gospel being received by the Gentiles. That's us, Lord. And so, God, I ask that you work in a great way. Jesus, I pray that you give me your heart, you give me your words, you give me your passion. We love you and thank you for all that you've done and all that you will do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So just as a, as a quick reminder, as we've gone through this, this particular chapter, chapter 10 of Acts, it, it begins with this guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is this centurion. He's in this city called Caesarea. Um, a centurion there, he's, he's a military leader. He's a Gentile, though. He's, he's a non-Jew. And as we studied that, we, we saw that, that he wanted to believe in God. He, he realized that the Roman gods weren't right. And he believed that there, was, there must have been this one only true God. He just didn't know exactly what it looked like. He didn't fully understand it. And so he's, he's praying, and he receives this, this vision. And, and, and he's told to send some guys to, to this city named Joppa. And then when they get to Joppa, there's going to be this guy named Peter and have Peter come back to him. And so as we looked at that, as we studied that passage, we, we try to encourage especially the men that day that, that even though 
Cornelius didn't have all the answers, even though he didn't fully understand, he was leading his family. I mean, he was the spiritual leader in that family. He was, he was the one that was, was trying to teach his children. He was, he was trying to guide his wife to be right with the one true God. And it's one of those things I think that um, to a great extent is absent in our society today. That unfortunately, we, as we see the um, family structure breaking down, that, that oftentimes it's the men who are not leading like they ought to. And so the encouragement was, especially for the guys, that we be the spiritual leaders in our families, that we're the ones that are encouraging our wives and our children, that we're doing devotions with our kids, that we're teaching our kids how to pray. And so what was, to me, so impactful in that is as God began to to reveal to him what he ought to do, even though he didn't fully know what God was, who God was, he did exactly what God wanted to do immediately. And so as we saw that two weeks ago, last week we looked at this passage about Peter. And Peter's in this small town named Joppa. And, and Peter's going through this whole thing. We know Peter. We've read about Peter. We've studied Peter throughout this book of Acts. We've seen Peter when we went through our, our, the Gospel of John. Most people who have any connection with church know about Peter, right? Peter's the, the great disciple. He's, he's the leader of the pack. And Peter goes up for an afternoon stroll on the, the roof of the, the home of where he was staying at. He's hungry and he, he's up there praying and he goes into this trance and he receives a, a vision from God. And it's a weird vision. Like he sees the sheet come down and he sees all these different animals on it. And the voice tells him to go and to eat these animals. Now, Peter's a hard-line Jew. He's like the Jew of the Jews. He's, he's the hardcore traditionalist. Like, he abides by these laws. And if we were to go back and read Leviticus chapter 11, it really spells out all this, the do's and the don'ts in the dietary realm of the Jews. And they were still abiding by this particular set of rules. And as he hears that, he realizes that most of those animals that were on this sheet were considered unclean, un, not kosher. And so as God says, get up and go eat, Peter says, no, no, Lord. And I, I challenge us to consider if it's possible for us to say, no, Lord. Because if we understand the idea of Lord, what Lord means, that if he is truly the Lord of our lives, if he's the one in charge, if we fully understand that he's the created and we're the creation, how are we to tell him no? Yet Peter does it three times. And as we compare Cornelius, who doesn't fully understand it, who's trying to learn, who, who is desperately seeking God for answers, who's like would be like, the seeker, and yet we have this deeply religious man, Peter, and this one who doesn't understand it's doing exactly what he's told, when he's told, immediately, and Peter's the one trying to say, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And how often we as believers do the same thing. Like, I do the same thing. Like, I, I want to I follow 
God, I want to be a good Christian, but it has to be on my terms. Like it has to align with what I want. And if it's not the way I want it, if it's not the way I envision it, then I'm going to say, well, hold up, whoa, 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 whoa. And try and tell God what to do, like Peter did. Ultimately, though, Peter is awoken from his vision by these guards that Cornelius had sent. He comes downstairs and he invites these Gentiles into the home that he's staying at. And they fellowship, they hang out that evening, and the next morning he marches down to Caesarea, some 30 miles. And he gets there to Caesarea, and that's really pretty much where we left off last week. And, and this week, as I want us to see, um, to see this other triumphal entry, if you will. I think when we look at this particular passage, if we look at verses 34 through, through 43, I believe we really see the heart of the gospel. Peter is, is with this group, and when he arrives at Cornelius' home, there's already a crowd there. Cornelius had gone and got his family and gotten his closest friends. They were gathered. They were waiting. And Peter comes. He shows up. And the, the last part of what we talked about last week is as he arrives there at, this, at Cornelius' home, Cornelius opens the door, and he just begins to fall on his knees. He's worshiping and kissing the feet of Peter. And Peter kind of grabs him by the collar and says, get up. He's only a guy. There's no need to worship me. And then he uses this to transition into this giving the gospel, of showing the heart of the gospel. Now, now listen, as we see the very beginning, I'm going to ask you guys to, to highlight a few passages or a few sentences, a few words here and there. In, in verse 34, I think we see this foundational element in faith where Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. See, Peter has that vision. He doesn't fully understand what it is. He doesn't, doesn't know. All, all he sees is the sheep. He sees these animals. He's supposed to go eat them, but it doesn't make sense to him. And, and even as he's leaving, even as he's walking to, to Caesarea, I think he's trying to figure out what in the world does this mean? Some commentaries will say that that, that sheet, the four corners of the sheet will kind of represent the four, the four um, corners of the world. And these animals, these, all these different types of animals represent all the different human races. And it begins to click here. This, this Peter, he, he walks and he gets over to the Gentiles. And we can't state this enough. There was such hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. Like absolute like hatred. Like, I mean, as, as big of a, a wall as you can think of. I think the last two weeks I've shared this, but to me it's, it's a statement that shows the absolute disgust that the Jews had for the Gentiles. In, in the Mishnah, which was a collection of, of laws and, and things for the Jews of, of this day, it was recorded that the purpose of a Gentile, the sole purpose of a Gentile, and again, a Gentile is a non-Jew, basically anybody who's not born Jewish, that the sole purpose of a Gentile was to fuel the flames of hell. You have to really hate somebody, don't you? To look at a particular race and say, listen, the only purpose you serve is to keep the fire in hell burning. That's intense, isn't it? That's a, that's a real, absolute hatred. And that's, that's exactly what we see playing out here. And so, so 
as Peter gets there, he's, he's, he's trying to, to fight through this, this whole belief system that he was, he was born and brought up in. Like his, the whole culture was that way. And Peter goes into this home, which is already tearing down walls just, just to spend time with a Gentile, just, just, just to even touch a Gentile, to, to, to sit and talk with a Gentile was, was ridiculous. And yet Peter goes into this home. I believe as he's getting there, maybe it's as he's approaching the doorsteps of Cornelius' house that the vision begins to click. The pieces of the puzzle come together. And he realizes that God doesn't see Jew or Greek. God doesn't see black or white. God doesn't see rich or poor. God doesn't see that. God's no respecter of people. Now, now some today take this to, to, to mean that this idea of, of God maybe runs the world as a democracy. And he accepts everyone and their chosen lifestyles and, and everything's okay as long as it's okay with you first. And if that's what you believe, then that's fine. And that's not what's being taught here. I think if people take that from here, they're twisting Scripture. 1 John 5, 3 says this, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. How often have we had conversations with people who aren't believers, and, and they begin to think that, that, that being a Christian means that we just abide by, like the Bible is nothing but a bunch of rules. Like this is our rule book. And if they, they want to do that, then if they want to become a Christian, it's going to be a boring life and they have to do all these things. They have to abide by all these rules. That verse says, no, it's not. We're supposed to keep his commandments, but those commandments aren't meant to be burdens for us. Um, I think 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5 says this, um, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. See, we don't get to make the rules. Now that's as probably politically incorrect as we can say today, isn't it? Because the world in which we live, society tells us that we are our own people and we should have the right to make whatever rule we want. We should be able to live any way we want to live. And that's not a biblical stance. It's not a biblical belief. That God's made commandments and certain commandments for us, and we're supposed to follow those commandments. And if we're truly believers, we're going. It doesn't mean we're ever going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we're never going to sin. We're always going to fall short. But we're going to use the Bible as our base. So we're going to use the Bible as our compass. And so that passage there, is, it's, it's not saying those, it's what that passage is saying. is like, listen, it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter where you live, what country you're from. It doesn't matter if you live in a, a, a mud hut or a, a mansion. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. That we are all even. We're all on the same playing field. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. That all means Jew, Gentile, everybody. Later on in that in verse 35, he, he gives us this understanding, a, a, a definition, I think, of 
what the Christian life is. It says this, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. We fear him. I think sometimes, again, we twist this understanding. What does it mean to fear God? Does it mean that we just shudder, that we're so scared to even approach him? Is, is God this domineering guy or, 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 or thing that just, that our life's nothing but a yo-yo to him and we just, we're, we're these little pets, we're these toys? Is that what God is? Is it some sadistic game that we're playing? That's not what the fear means here. It means this, this reverence that we're obeying him. Again, this idea, this understanding, it's hard for us today because we so badly want to do what we want to do, don't we? Like no one, as adults, sometimes we think like when we're kids, we understand we have to do what mom and dad say. Although when we're kids, we don't understand it. We don't want to do it, right? And if you guys ever notice, we never graduate from that. Do we? Like now all of a sudden we're parents and we're telling our kids, you got to do this and they don't listen and we get frustrated, don't we? But yet we do the same thing with God, don't we? I mean, it's exactly what, I mean, we're just, we're just older children and that's what happens here. And so this, this Bible says what that passage, what, what Peter's saying here in this opening kind of beginning as he's transitioning, sharing the gospel, he says, listen, this, this, God's not partial to any ethnic race, any, any particular people group. He's just, he's open to those who will, who will love him and keep his commandments. He goes now into a couple of things. And I think as you look at those, that first passage, we kind of said that, again, 34 through 43, I believe is, is kind of the heart of the gospel. And, and, and Peter gets in this short message. It's, it's, it doesn't take very long. But in these few verses, verses, verse 38, he gives this kind of brief overall description of Jesus's life. And then from there, he gets into verse 39, where he talks about Jesus's death. This is what I think is interesting. Verse 39, he says this, and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And this says, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's a big statement. As we read it, well, we, we know that he, was, he died on a cross. But, but again, picture this. Now Peter's beginning to try and build these bridges to help understand like, that we're all guilty. Okay, we're all guilty. Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles. We're all guilty. Okay, almost all, every time Peter begins to preach and talk about the, the death of Jesus, he's constantly blaming it on the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. He, he says the same thing. And what's interesting is, as Peter's talking to this brand new group, Peter doesn't change the story. Okay, Peter doesn't omit anything. Peter doesn't try and soften it. Peter doesn't try and dress it up to make it more palatable for people to, to swallow. He, he, Peter sticks with the original message, the absolute Bible truth. He, he teaches the word. And as he does that, he, he makes that statement that he hung on a, on a tree. This is what is important about it. Because he could have easily just said that, that he died, right? That's all he could have said that. But, but as he builds this connection, this is what happens. Okay, so the, the Jewish way of execution during this day was stoning. 
We, we saw that a few chapters back in Acts chapter 7. This guy named Stephen. Remember Stephen? One of the first deacons. Remember he's got brought before the, Jew, the, Jew, the Sanhedrin, kind of the, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. And he's, he, we have this going back and forth. And ultimately he's, he's arrested um, in that Sanhedrin group. And they take him outside the city walls and they stone him using the Jewish way of execution. Now, the Romans, which is non-Jewish, so they're Gentiles, the Roman way of execution was crucifixion. Peter still blames the Jews for the death of Jesus, but he lets the Gentiles know, the Roman centurion know that your hand was in it as well, that it was a Gentile crucifixion. We're all guilty. We've all sinned, and Jesus died because we all had a hand in it. Verse 40 through 41, Peter talks about the resurrection, about how even though Jesus was placed on a tree, even though Jesus died, he didn't stay that way. The story didn't end for Jesus. The story doesn't end for us as believers, that Jesus was, was crucified, yes. He died, yes, but he was resurrected. The exact same thing that we come to next week as we celebrate Easter, that Jesus conquered death. And he makes mention of that. He points to that there. And then verse 42, he talks about how Jesus one day will return as a judge. We don't have time to, to fully flesh that out, but I would encourage you maybe, maybe this, this week in your Bible reading, you go back and you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Revelation chapter 20. This idea of, of Jesus returning as a judge. Again, I, I think one of those things that we don't often want to consider and think about is this. And part of it we do. Every one of us, one day, stands before Jesus. Now that is very exciting, right? For those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Savior. But that's, that's exciting because as we come face to face with Jesus, that's our entrance into heaven. That's, that's we get to spend eternity in bliss. We get to spend eternity in heaven with, with all these amazing things there. We get, to, we get to worship Jesus for the rest of our lives. And that's, that's great. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's something we should, we should think about. That's something we should, we should celebrate and look forward to. But the other part of that is this. We give an account for the life that we lived here on earth. And how many of us are jumping for joy and excitement to stand before Jesus right now to give an account for what we've done so far in our life? How many of us are excited to tell Jesus, this is what I did for you? Now those actions, those works, aren't going to be what gets us into heaven. Jesus paid the price. But as I've talked to us before and as we've alluded to, listen, we have to understand that this faith that we have, this, this Christian journey that we're on, we cannot turn it into some cheap thing. That it was bought with a price. It was provided to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. It cost him, didn't it? 
in the life that we live, like if we really believe this, if we're really going to live this out, then it will cost us something. And how many of us right now are prepared to stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives? For us, maybe it's time that we do a serious self-evaluation and consider what we're doing for him. And then Peter ends his, his sermon with this offer of salvation. Verse 43 says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So as Peter goes through this, as Peter talks about Jesus and this, this life he had here, as, as Peter talks about his death, as Peter talks about his resurrection, as Peter talks about this return one day of him being the judge, then he says, but listen, for everyone who believes, there's forgiveness, there's salvation. It's amazing, isn't it? Again, because as you go through this, as you go through the gospel, you consider all those things. How can we not be in awe that despite our constant desire to be gods of our own lives, and despite our constant stumbling and falling, despite our rebellion, like God still loves us. To me, that's amazing. And so Peter goes through this, and, and I'm, in my mind, I, from my experience as a preacher, like you think you have this whole outline, you know exactly what you want to talk about, and Peter's probably just getting ready. He's probably just trying to prime the pump. He's probably just trying to get his opening illustration of this big sermon he has for the Gentiles. And then the Holy Spirit interrupts. And he takes a paragraph and he saves a household. And he opens the door to the Gentiles. In verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, as Peter's in his opening illustration about to pray and get to point number one, the Holy Spirit begins to work. It says there, the Holy Spirit fell on all that heard the word. I would underline that last sentence in that word, or in that, in that verse, word. You know, it all starts with the word. The word meaning God's word. We, we unashamedly put focus on teaching God's word. We, we, on Sunday mornings, go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, um, we are in no rush. We are not going to be able to tackle the book of Acts in a six-week study. Um, I, I believe this. I believe that we as a church, me as your pastor, I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God's word. Now, I can't tell you this. I'm 40 years old right now, okay? I'm still a young guy. I'm getting a little gray. Been losing my hair for a long time. The reality is this, I, by the time the Lord takes me, I, I, I can confidently tell you I'm not going to be able to preach the whole Bible unless he's got another hundred years for me. But listen, we unashamedly go through God's word 
This isn't judgment in other churches that don't go this style. I'm not going to say those who don't preach verse by verse are wrong and are heretics. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that a church service where that has several songs and then gets to a point where, where um, the sermon's 20 minutes. I'm not saying that's wrong either, but listen, this is what I believe. From the best biblical perspective that I can see, the Holy Spirit moves and works through the teaching of God's Word. Not my words, but God's Word. And that's exactly what Peter does. He, he's teaching the Word, and the Holy Spirit moves. And these Gentiles believe. Verse 45 says, and the, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter. So remember we said before, when Peter left Joppa, he went with these three um, servants of Cornelius. But he also brought six of his friends to be witnesses, to see what was going to take place. And so these other six witnesses, they see all this. They see Peter's sermon, and they see how the people begin to respond and they're amazed. It says, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The next verse, it says, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. This is why I think we see this taking place. In Acts chapters 2, we, we talk about the day of Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the Jews there outside probably the temple in that upper room, right? And if you remember that, you know, the disciples and those that were with them, they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes, we talk about the tongues of fire, and they begin to break out speaking in tongues, right? People outside hear this. Now, again, my belief is this. Um, tongues here um, were known languages. They're not just jibber-jabbering. They're not just blabbering things out. They're speaking known languages. And there were people outside, again, in Acts chapter 2, people outside that had come for this, this Pentecost feast. And you have people traveling from all different areas. And so you have all sorts of different languages being represented. And now all of a sudden they're there and they can start hearing their own dialect. They can hear their own languages being spoken. And they're amazed. That's Acts chapter 2. That's the Jews. That's the Holy Spirit falling. And one of the things we see being given to them in that particular time was this idea of, giving, of, of speaking in tongues. Here we have in Acts chapter 10, they're in Cornelius' home, and the Gentiles are here. The Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles, and we see basically the day of Pentecost playing out right here. They begin to speak in these tongues. And, and the, the important thing is not necessarily what was being said, how it was being said, but the important thing for us to see in this particular passage, again, is that Jesus or God was showing that there's no partiality. God was saying, listen, it was special the day of Pentecost. It, it was special when the Holy Spirit fell upon those Jews there. But it's just as special here with these Gentiles. There's not one that's greater than the other. It's just as special. It's just as important. After Peter sees all this shaking out, he pretty much turns to his guys, I think his six friends, and says, listen, uh, the Holy Spirit came. <laughs> These people are saved. So why shouldn't we baptize them? It's kind of a rhetoric question, right? He's not asking for a response. Then they go. That last verse there that we talked about, or we, we read, verse 40, it says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So he sees that they're truly saved, and from there he goes and he baptizes them. Now, this doesn't 
Again, I believe this reaffirms our position on baptism. Baptism doesn't save somebody. Baptism is a reflection. It's it's you showing, it's a demonstration to those around you that you're going to follow Jesus, that that you're a a believer and you want to serve and be faithful. They were already believers. I mean, Peter's acknowledging that. Listen, they've received the Holy Spirit. They're believers. So why shouldn't we baptize them? It goes, but this is what I want you guys to underline. If If you haven't underlined anything else, it says this, the very last sentence says this. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So this household, Cornelius and his friends and his family, they get saved. Peter was the one. Peter was the one. He was the preacher. He was the one that, that did this. And we see this very important lesson just tucked into a half of a verse where they turn to Peter and they ask him to stay. This passage, this really Acts chapter 10, as an illustration of the Great Commission. I mean, right next to there, right next to that passage right there, I want you to write down that you underline, hopefully, maybe in the columns of your Bible or whatever, you write down Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Okay, and then let's turn back there. Let me just, we did this not too long ago. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's Jesus talking as he's ready to leave. That's his, his last commission. That's his last commandment to the disciples, right? And he says, listen, he goes, go, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. So right there, Jesus is already saying there's no partiality. There's, there's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's, it's all people. Remember, and, and Peter, Peter is told by God to go, and, and he's faithful to that, right? In the story we've seen, God tells him to go. He has his vision from, from God, and these people show up. And so even though it's against his custom, it's against his upbringing, it's against everything he's been taught as a child, he goes, and he makes disciples, right? I mean, he goes, and he, and he shares the gospel with them. He tells them about Jesus, they get saved and he baptizes them. And then he stays and he teaches. We have a, a mission statement at our church. Zach, maybe you can pull it up there. You've, if you've not seen it on the bulletin, the back of the bulletin, we have our core values and our mission statement. And this is, I think, important for us. And one of the things I love about us going through the book of Acts is this. As we go through this journey, we can take these little timeouts. We can stop and we can, we can try and take what we're reading here and make it applicable to us, hopefully individually, but then us as a faith family. Okay, our, our mission statement, the, the, the full version, the long version is this, that we exist to glorify God through seeing souls saved and lives changed. It's, it's a long phrase. And so we try and get it down to just a few statements. Our mission statement is to see souls saved and lives changed. 
Okay, if we take that and we apply it there to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and then we see it here in the story that we talked about today with Peter. Okay, that first part, soul saved, seeing soul saved, that's evangelism. That's Peter leaving Joppa and going to Caesarea. That's, that's Peter going into a, a, an unfamiliar area, an uncomfortable situation, and telling them about Jesus and what Jesus did for them. I mean, that's Peter being politically incorrect and telling them they need a Savior. That's Peter being bold and courageous. That's the evangelism part. But as we read the Great Commission, we have to understand this. Jesus' commandment was much more than just evangelism. It was bigger than just let's get them saved. As as important as that is, it's bigger than that. Because that last part there of our mission statement is, is seeing lives changed. And that's discipleship. That's Peter staying there in the household with Cornelius and his family. That's Peter beginning to to take them and say, okay, now you're saved. Here's the next steps. That's us in our journey. That's that's us having spent time with people, praying with people. And then maybe we have this amazing opportunity of seeing them saved. Maybe we get a chance to help guide a prayer or see something. But then that's us not just saying, okay, now you're saved. Good job. You're done. Let's go to the next target. But that's us putting our arms around them and loving them and saying, okay, Here's this thing called a Bible. We're going to read it together. There's this amazing thing that we have this opportunity as, as a Christian now to pray. What is prayer? It's us just talking with God. Well, how do we do it? And then it's us walking them through that. It's us living life together. My greatest hope for our church is that we're a great commission church. That a mission statement that we have isn't just a catchy phrase that we put on a coffee sleeve or a website. It's not just something that kind of rolls off the tongue and sounds churchy. But it's that we take God's word and we learn it and we apply it, and we use it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. Thank you for all the things you've done for us. I thank you, God, for your word. Lord, I pray that you help us to be very faithful to it. Lord, I pray that, that it always is the focal point of our church. That it's not just a part of church, but it's the part of church. Lord, and it's not my words or the person speaking, but but God, that we're focused on reading your word. And that we're growing. That our hearts desire that, Lord. Maybe there's some here today that, quite honestly, if push came to shove, their heart doesn't yearn to read their Bibles. It doesn't yearn to spend time with you in prayer. Lord, I, I pray that, that you just encourage them. 
Lord, I pray that you give them that heart for it, that you give them a passion. Lord, that church is just not something that we attend on, on a Sunday morning and maybe a Wednesday night. That this isn't their, their only time of, of being with you. Lord, I pray that you help us to do just like Peter did. Help us to be a church, a faith family that does the Great Commission on a daily basis. Lord, that we don't just try and tip the scales one way, that we're just trying to get people saved, get people saved, get people saved, and leave them there. But Lord, that we do look for opportunities to share the gospel with people. And that we help them to come to that point of knowing you. But then we engage in discipleship. Lord, I I just pray that you help us. Help us to be like Peter. Help us to find people that need your word. Lord, I pray that today you give us visions of, of faces Help us to find our Corneliuses. Give us the boldness to go and to, to share the gospel and then live life with people. So Holy Spirit, just ask that you work in your way. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com. If you don't have a, a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com, or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.